Greetings, everybody. I'm really excited. Today is the first day of the First Avenue Ventures podcast, where we are helping founders build their businesses. How are we doing that? We're talking to founders because learning from other people's experiences, good and bad, is probably the best way to do it. Laurel, how are we doing today? Great. Great. Is on deck for our first podcast. Today, we are talking with Mary Drennan and Tiffany Vickers Davis of Nourish. Uh, Nourish is a food and meal delivery service that brings chef inspired meals to your home. Awesome. Awesome. I love, I love Nourish products and I love this story. So I'm excited to hear it. What are we, uh, what are we looking for from them today? Well, this podcast actually corresponds with an online course we've prepared for founders called The Structured Startup. And Tiffany and Mary are actually speaking to module five of that course, which is all about developing your MVP, uh, product testing, and getting your product to market, really. it's great. I look forward to it. And thank you guys so much. Would you tell us a little bit about your company, Nourish? So Nourish is so many things now, but its inception was to be fully prepared, fresh meals delivered straight to the client and made with whole ingredients so that they were um, within a range that we considered healthy from our experience in that space. Thinking back to the sort of the inception of the idea and getting ready to launch your company, where were you in terms of product development? This is a great question. Um, we, we actually started out as a paleo meal delivery company for fitness facilities here in Birmingham. Um, at the time, the paleo diet was kind of the rage, but people couldn't figure out how to enjoy food and they were getting stuck in the rut of, I know I can eat grilled chicken and a green salad. So the fitness company was looking for a caterer to provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner options for the people that went to the fitness facility. Um, And they found us, happened upon us, and we knew how to execute on the paleo diet kind of from our experience, and we were able to kind of enlighten the clients about, hey, you can still eat foods that you know to be familiar and comforting. And if you make some adjustment to the product itself, it becomes paleo friendly. So for example, we created recipes that were paleo pizza, Um, a paleo corn dog, how to make chicken fingers that are paleo friendly. And instead of coating them in flour, you're going to coat them in um, almond flour. Um, And so we just made like, we kind of demystified the whole diet for them in a way that was like, oh, okay, well, if I can still enjoy these foods that I know to be familiar and comforting, and I am working out hard in the gym, I'm going to have a better success rate at, you know, what my end nutritional goals are. 
Um, and so that was kind of how the product developed in theory. There were some changes, Laurel, that came over the course of the years that we have made adjustments. I mean, obviously, we're no longer paleo specific because that diet's kind of fallen out of favor. Um, and we really don't hold true and fast to any particular diet, but we do, we are constantly evaluating and now that we have 10 years in, we can very specifically say, these are the products that our clients really want. The parts of the parts of product development that we had to figure out over the longer term was realizing that what you consume at your house, like if you're making dinner, you're going to eat it within you know a 20 minute period. If you're going to a restaurant, you place your order and in theory, it's supposed to be on your table in seven to eight minutes. When you're purchasing a nourish meal, um, we have to understand that there's a good possibility that somebody's going to heat it up seven days from the time that we make it. And it's possibly or probably going to be reheated in a microwave. So those are kind of the product specs that we had to learn and figure out over the course of the last 10 years. So that was kind of how that started. Um, that leads really well into my next question, which is thinking about the early days as a, when you were providing the paleo diet, what was the next incremental step for your organization? So funny, when we did that, we were working as the brand of the gym. So they had already created a brand that they, we stickered under that brand. No big deal, right? We were kind of their in-house food provider. And immediately after a year of doing that, we realized that we needed to create our own brand. And that was really the next step. It was, we had the product, we knew the product worked and that it was received well. And now we needed to take it and make it something that was wholly ours and that we could then sort of splinter the business away from one specific, because in a way the client, the client was one thing, it was the gym, right? And then we wanted to diversify that out to individuals and other entities. And that's what we did. So we had to create our, we had to create our brand after we had our product. As you were creating your own brand, how did you get to the MVP level? When did you know that you were ready with your first Nourish product? Wow, that's a great question. This is a actually a very funny story. I'll let you tell it because it still splinters Tiffany. It still um, provides her so much anxiety. So I'll let her tell that part. <laughs> um, so I have a great pair of really cute skinny jeans that I'll never fit into again, directly related to the stress of this particular thing. So when Mary and I um, conceived that we wanted to do a brand of our own, we were servicing the gyms. We were looking forward. We felt like we had about a two-year run with the gyms to kind of flesh out the our specific brand part. We went to a meeting with the gym. This was in the summer. It was nine in the morning. And we sat down and within probably 10 minutes, it was clear that we were not going to get the same level of buy-in that they had given in the past. That was kind of the base. I mean, it was very successful. It was very lucrative. It had all the good things. But for whatever reason, 
they were diversifying sort of things on their end and they didn't want to put the effort in on their side. So we immediately saw that like, we have got to get this brand going. So we left that meeting. We immediately went to Purple Onion on Green Springs and ate cheeseburgers for brunch (laughs) um, and probably like had a lot of carbohydrate coma. And then we came back and within a month we had our branding. And that was number one. Number two, and this goes into your answer. So that's August. We put our name on the shirt at Creative Montessori thinking, oh man, okay, well, we still got a runway on this. We've got some time to like pull this together. At this point, um, we're getting towards the holidays and Mary is going on her delayed honeymoon with Bob and she comes into the office, sits down and says, I knew she's pregnant. She's going to, and they've been married. So not to confuse your client and like your listeners or um, your people and be like, oh my God, these people have no morals. They're, they were, they were already married, but they had not gotten to have a honeymoon. It was months and months later. She, we knew she'd been, she's pregnant and she sits down and um, she says, um, I'm having twins. And we're like, oh, my God. (laughs) And so that's like first stunner. Same day. Same day. Um, She leaves for the honeymoon. It seems like everything's fine. I go to the office the next day and there is like the FBI raiding our office. And it is the USDA representatives have come from Huntsville and they are now not just dropping in on our office, but every gym carrying our food in the Southeast because there is a major violation on their on our part. Not food quality, not um, anything to do with the product itself, but it had to do with a loophole in the system that was if the transaction is not taken directly by the provider, us, and the food product contains more than 2% meat, cheese, it's actually um, beef, cheese, or chicken, or something strange like that, then it becomes a USDA certified product, and you have to have a USDA representative inspecting it at all times. So they go into all of our places, they take all the food, they throw it away. They come into our place, they shut us down. They sit behind my desk and like ask me for information that I, I mean, I, I've never been so sick so fast. And all of a sudden, our business model died in one day. It was gone. We could not service the gyms. We could not change our product. We're not going to create a paleo-vegetarian product in a matter of minutes. But that was the the second week of December. Uh By the last day of December, we had a website. We could take the transaction on our own. We were back up and running. We started selling our products individually to the clients at the gym and just delivering them as a drop point. And they call it like a CSA drop so that we were back into compliance. And that was it. That's when we knew. But it wasn't because we had some great intuition. It was literally like a cannon was pointed directly at us and we had to figure it out. But I think, okay, so to, to kind of speak to that a little bit, and this may be your next question, and I just jumped the gun on you. When you're 
an entrepreneur like we are. You know, like we're food people. Neither of us have a business degree. Everything about our business we have learned in action, you know, like in the trenches. And so we were not trying to skirt some regulation or regulatory agency. We didn't even know it existed. We didn't even know the regulation was, you know, out there. So I think that that's one of the one of the key mistakes that we made. But in hindsight, it was a key mistake, but it was like a catalyst for us actually getting to the place where we needed to be, which was an e-commerce brand with our own brand, taking our own transaction, deriving the customer data, you know, really driving the ship. And it was forced upon us in a very emotional and gun to our head kind of way, but it really was the catalyst that moved us so far down the path of where we needed to be. Well, and at the time, I think what was interesting too is when we made that switch, it was like a light went off and we, I mean, we sit in the same office we have for 10 years, actually longer because we worked together before that. But we were talking about how we didn't even realize at the time that when we were servicing the gym, we did not actually have a product except for the food. So we didn't have any way of retaining information on clients. We had no contacts beyond getting them to the gym. We had no way to build a database. We had, I mean, all the viable pieces of the business that we operate now are all directly related to that one flub of just really not knowing that there was a glass and glass wall in front of us until we ran into it. Going back to your initial products, how did you get them ready for testing or how did you test them? Okay. So this is going to be a very strange answer to people that are actually starting a company and starting a testing a product. So prior to us working in, in this meal delivery business, Tiffany and I both were recipe testers at Cooking Light Magazine, which you know is now defunct. What we did there was took other people's recipes that they had developed. We tested them and retested them. And um, part of the job was making sure that these healthy recipes were going to work in the home setting. So sometimes we would test recipes three to five times. Um, just to make sure that they were completely accurate and correct. Um, Cooking Light was very much based on the nutritional philosophy that meals should be balanced and healthy is a delicate balance of all of the things that we know now to be macronutrients, right? Like protein, fat, carbs, sodium. And that was really what they kind of hung their philosophy on. All the while, what was spinning around them in the 90s was Atkins and South Beach and probably not paleo yet. Sugar Busters. Sugar Busters and all of the things that people were jumping on, people still jump on that are considered fad diets. They're all actually exactly the same, but they change the name every couple years to confuse people. So the diet culture was swirling and Cooking Light really held to that philosophy of being just like a solid, nutritionally balanced publication. Okay, so if you know that that was our framework of testing and developing recipes for the home cook that wanted to eat healthy, 
Um, fast forward to 2012, and the fitness community is testing out this paleo diet. People can't figure it out. They really want their clients to be successful in the gym. And guess what? Nutrition is 80% of people getting healthy and losing weight. The gym is a great tool and resource, but if you're going out and eating McDonald's afterwards, it don't matter how much you're working out, right? So, so from a product standpoint, when they came to us and said, we need to create a line, we need you guys to do 15 options of breakfast, lunch, and dinner every week. And for us, like, that's a no-brainer, you know? So, you know, we put together a menu. Tiffany and I had done a lot of catering before that. We put together a menu knowing, you know, exactly the components of paleo that would work. And so from that standpoint, there wasn't like a whole lot of testing involved. You know, like if you know food, um, you know what flavor profiles are going to work. Like that's just part of being in a culinary background. I think when you put a menu out, and the part of it that, that we had to figure out, I think I mentioned before, was, you know, what's going to work in a microwave seven days from now? And that part was, you know, on the job testing and knowing, like, after a period of a month, like, these are the top five items that sold. And chicken is always a big seller, but chicken dries out in the microwave. So what can we do to combat that? We put a sauce on the side that they can remove before heating. You know, those are the kind of components of the of the product, the initial product that we had to figure out. Like figuring out a paleo menu wasn't complicated for us in the sense of like just starting from scratch. You know, we had already done that foundational work for 10 years prior. That's a really great insight into how you developed your product. And this may this may be retreading that ground, but I'm going to ask anyway, just to see. Um, what did you find were the most effective and efficient ways to test your idea on the market? My answer would be, we just put it out there. One of the good things about the product that we did then that we do now is that we are very good candidates for that service ourselves. We're busy, we're parents, um, sometimes single parents and we are fairly health-minded, but I think de definitely not interested in going through the drive-through. So we have been the recipients of our own product many, many, many times as clients. In the beginning, it was basically us trying it, and then we would just put it out there and use the sales data to give us the feedback we needed to figure out what were the winners and what were the losers. But the, okay, so you may be wanting to ask this question next too. The difference between us, you know, starting a product with no client base and going to Pepper Place and trying to figure out if anyone wants to buy it and the path that we had is very different. So to give you some context, the first week that we started with the fitness company was also mid-December. A lot of things for us happen in mid-December. You know, fitness companies are slow in mid-December. So we felt like that was a good time to start with them. Um, we could kind of get the wheels 
of commerce moving before January hits and everyone is back in resolution mode. So we started with 400 meals that first week. It doesn't sound like a lot, um, but it was, you know, just a handful of people that were helping do that. The next week it was 800 meals. The next week it was 1,200. And so within three or four weeks, it was very, very apparent that this is not just a product that we like. This is a product that like actually sells and it sells substantial amounts of volume. And it was kind of like a, oh crap, this is a real business, right? So we were just executing essentially on someone else's idea with a lot of products that we already had a tremendous experience and expertise in. Whereas I think other product entrepreneurs, they're like, hey, I'm going to make this like peach habanero jelly that my mom or my grandmother taught me the recipe. And I'm going to take it to Pepper Place and like test it out and see if people really want it. We were never, we never had to go over that hurdle and say, now I will say, Laurel, on the heels of that, once we had our core business developed, we have implemented new products across the board that have been complete flops. So the original the original product was like a huge sell from the get-go. And once that was stable and we started testing other things, that's where we saw kind of what you're describing, which is like, how do you, how do you work through that process of knowing that something's going to sell? And I think part of the benefit of having a co-founder um, that's kind of like a yin and yang is we're both pretty risk tolerant and we both we felt like we had a safety net of this enormous client that was kind of propping us up with a product line that was selling really well and so we could take some risks on other products that haven't done as well. Is there anything about product development that I haven't asked you that you would like to add? I think something Mary has hit on a few times and it's still to this day, I think it's very true. Mary, you can say this is accurate to you. For us, the product was the meals, right? And we have, after all this time, gone through five jillion iterations of every type of meal you can imagine and evaluated them from every angle cost, how hard they are to make, how hard it is to make 180 of them versus, you know, one dinner that's very nice is pretty simple. It might be take some time, but I mean, do a bunch of those and you're like, no, we're not doing that again. Same with uh, things that are uh, kind of different kinds of profiles flavor wise, or um, if the reheat element, I mean, there's so many, the food was never a problem for us. We're like Mary said, that was something that we could fall into a menu pretty quickly and it is not a big deal. It actually is, in my opinion, the product, the finished product for us is not just the food. It's all the parts of it, right? So now it's the the container and the, the time that it sits on the shelf and the all these things. And that part has been, it's taken every minute of every time that we've de devoted to it to get 
Right. And it's been the biggest, craziest roller coaster of a learning curve. I mean, I'm looking at our office walls now and I just kind of chuckle at how far we've come from the beginning. We had plastic containers we could get at Restaurant Depot with snap top lids. And now we have dual ovenable, uh, microwavable things with a, we have a pneumatic sealer. We have two actually um, with uh, custom sleeves and we finally have a, a real trademark. I mean, all that stuff, we didn't come in knowing any of that. So the product as it's, as it is now, and that's the evolution. And I know your people are, you know, looking at that very first product, the snap top lid is kind of where they're starting off. And for them, maybe their product is more complicated. The food is not that complicated, but all the things that go around it have been amazingly, amazingly complicated and fascinating to learn about. Awesome. That was so exciting. I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, uh, Mary, Tiffany, Laurel. What did you think? What, what did we learn? I learned so much from Mary and Tiffany. I think it's really interesting when they talk about the difference in product testing to create something that was shelf stable and something that could, you know, live outside the kitchen for however many days that it was in, you know, their clients' homes. Because I do think that as all of us, you know, we have our areas of expertise and we're so excited to share that expertise. We have so much knowledge like they did with food. And yet there's still always, you know, unexpected areas of taking your passion and turning it into a business. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. They, you know, listening to the obstacles that they overcame and the focus they had while they overcame it. So many entrepreneurs get lost in the minutia. Hey, I want my logo to look perfect. Hey, I want you know my website to be unblemished. When really, when you're starting to get stuff off the ground, it is so important to get it in people's hands, or I guess in Nurse's case, people's mouths. Uh, so it is. It, it was. It was good just to hear. And it was the continual changing too. Uh, so greatly enjoyed it. Should we get some final words from Tiffany and Mary? Absolutely. Let's do it. Thank you for this first one. We actually work pretty heavily with other entrepreneurs that are either new to building a product or new to this particular line of distribution, which is direct to customer Um, And that was an opportunity that came to us in COVID. And so we have kind of coached other entrepreneurs through some pretty tough waters. And I think by and large, um, the biggest misstep that we see of people in the early days is thinking that they need this like tip top expensive branded look when they haven't even done the first step that we're talking about, which is figured out, does anybody want to buy your product? Because if no one wants to buy that peach habanero jelly that Meemaw like forced down your throat and you love, it doesn't matter if you have the nicest branded box in the world. 
if nobody wants to buy it, you don't have a business. Yes. And like, I think there's a lot of people out there that are like thinking that it's like really sexy to go get like all this expensive packaging and marketing and logo and all this stuff. And actually none of that matters unless somebody wants to pay you for your product. So I think that this type of work that y'all are doing could potentially be like really impactful because from our standpoint, if this gives you any perspective, when we finally, and I, I told you, we're pretty risk tolerant. When we finally took the plunge to like really work hard on the look and feel and we hired the designer and we hired the marketing team, we had been in this for four years and we were doing over $2 million in sales. You know, it was, that was not a first step for us. Our first step was figuring out what people want to buy. How do we get it to them? How do we give them the best user experience at like the base level cost for us? And that's when we take the next step. It's true. We see a lot of cart before the horse. So that's the piece of advice that we actually give out most. So I'm glad that you asked that. Yeah, it's true. I think that's really excellent advice. I appreciate it. Um, I used to work with someone who always said you had to be a salesman before you were a CEO. I believe that. Well, another thing too, I will say if when your folks have a product that they feel good about, and maybe this is the step after what Mary's talking about, because that is, gosh, she's right. That is a big one is um, finding a group. I mean, it's kind of, I feel like being an entrepreneur is kind of like being a mom of little kids you got to surround yourself with people who have your same situation and you will find so much help and support and really just camaraderie in this constant, the similar struggles that you go through, whether it's managing people or managing finances or dips and, you know, going down, going up, things like we're talking about developing product and, and things over time. I mean, all of that stuff is so much easier to sort of go through when you can call up somebody and say, oh my gosh, you know, X, Y, Z's happened. And you know that they have the exact same thing. And it may not be, it's just the, the similarities in those situations are sometimes it's really helpful. And I have a business partner, so I already have a built-in sort of insulation. I don't have to think of all these things on my own or struggle or stress about things alone, but it's nice to have friends in totally different businesses, but same sort of problems. It's nice. 